Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. Uh, my name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Remy Drabkin at Remy in Dayton. It's uh, June 15th, 2022. Thank you so much, Remy, for joining us today. Uh, first thing we want to start with, since we've, we've interviewed you before about a lot of your kind of early life in wine, so we're kind of covering most of the last few years. So why don't you tell us about the upcoming uh, First Queer Wine Fest and uh, sort of uh, its relation to Wine Country Pride. Sure. Um, I started Wine Country Pride in 2020 with a group of friends uh, and small business owners some queer folks, some not. Uh, we really wanted to bring a pride celebration to this rural part of Oregon. We did that celebration on property for the last couple of years. Um, we called ourselves Wine Country Pride to begin with, even though the, everything was happening at Remy Wines. We didn't want to make this just a Remy Wines event. It was always really important that if we were creating a pride event, we were creating it for the community. We were also creating an event in uh, at the height of COVID um, and having to keep those safety concerns top of mind. So we did this incredible event here for two years um, with a lot of focus on uh, equity, uh, safety, and sustainability. Earlier this year, we formalized, uh, after two years of fundraising and having used another nonprofit as an umbrella to, um, in order to, to have the money that were coming in go through a nonprofit and out into the community. And we saw that the, uh, the community was ready to really kind of dive into the work that we were doing. So we formalized as a nonprofit. Um, earlier this year and now we've taken this event that was primarily held here and we've taken it to to year-round events so we have quarterly uh, queer meetups which are free all ages held in public locations for ease of access um, and they're really those are just networking opportunities we have our quarterly drag shows um, and we're taking the festival part of it and we're transforming it this year. It'll be an all day long, free, open to all ages with programming in Spanish, English and ASL um, on Alpine Avenue from noon until 8 p.m. followed by our drag extravaganza. So that relates to Queer Wine Fest because another way that we've reached to the community this year is to say community do events raise money for the nonprofit. Um, well, of course, you know, last year, the last two years, we were doing pretty much all the Pride events right here at Remy Wines, except for um, the public Pride car parade that had, was happening in, in Newburgh um, in partnership with Wine Country Pride. So as we were preparing to move the festivities that have been here, of course, as a queer-owned business, I still wanted to be doing um, uh, something for the queer community mm -hmm. um, and this was really an opportunity to bring it back into the wine focus for wine country pride um, so we just started doing reach out 
and trying to contact as many wineries that we knew that were either queer owned or had queer winemakers or queer head wine growers. Mm -hmm. um, we really, we used, we worked with our PR firm to get that, to try to get that word out really, really broad and wide with an, an open invitation um, for, for pretty much anybody to attend as long as you kind of met that criteria. So um, we ended up with a lot of interest, uh, mostly from Oregon, Washington, and California. Um, uh, and so we actually do have wineries coming from Oregon, Washington, and California. Uh, we've selected the wines to provide a really good a variety of wines. So we have white wines, sparkling wines, rosés. There's some, I think, at least one orange wine. Um, and then with our red wines, uh, we have, of course, Pinot Noir, but we have wines from other regions in Oregon, as well as, um, you know, a, a, a number of different varietals. So really a lot of diversity in the the wine. It's an opportunity to bring, Queer Wine Festival is an opportunity to bring focus to the quality of wine and the impact of queer folk on the wine industry as a whole, in addition to starting to really create professional networks within uh, the queer wine community. And that doesn't exist right now. There is no professional network of queer wine professionals. So I'm starting that work. Um, we decided early on that it would be a fundraiser for Wine Country Pride, so this ties back. The long arch of my story here is we started at Wine Country Pride encouraging businesses to host their own events as fundraisers for Wine Country Pride. This is one of two events that Remy Wines is hosting as a fundraiser for Wine Country Pride, but I'm also doing this greater step with it mm -hmm. of starting this work of creating uh, more professional queer networks within the world of wine. So it has a greater good that it's serving because it's not just a tasting event, right? And it's not a sales event. In fact, there won't be wine for sale at the event unless you, you know, get onto your phone and make a purchase from somebody that's there. Um, there will be a plethora of food and we brought a kind of big name Portland band out, Camp Crush, um, because we want it to be, we, I've been describing this event to people, uh, to wine people, I should say. Um, imagine, and, and so people that have been around the Willamette Valley wine industry will understand this association. If you imagine Passport to Pinot meets counterculture, um, that's what we're trying to do. It's an upscale wine event that focuses on high quality wines, tasting a lot of different wines, experiencing um, uh, more complex food pairings, but also enjoying you know, the atmosphere, the setting, mm -hmm. and spending a few hours being more leisurely in that way. Um, so it's accomplishing a lot, and it's getting a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's getting a lot of national attention. Mm -hmm. um, there's still a lot, we're, locally, we're having more trouble getting people to know about it. Um, the people we've heard from that are coming are really excited. I will say, we don't currently have a lot of people from the wine industry coming. Um, I'm actually answering, a, some interview questions um, 
right now for, uh, well, not right now, but <laughs> this morning on my run in my notes, I was answering some interview questions for Wine Spectator, which is great because Wine Spectator is going to be doing a piece on uh, LGBTQ folks in the wine industry. And um, one of the questions related to what folks in the wine industry can do to support the queer community. And part of my answer is to, to show up, mm -hmm. to actually support. Um, we're sending out an invitation, personalized invitations via email right now to um, people that suggest, you know, that this is not only a good way, but maybe during Pride Month, a good way to acknowledge some of your queer employees um, who might not have the same uh, access to going to events like this, without, that this would be a good gift to give. And then I think the other thing I want to share with you, speaking of access, is we did um, address, we, we've been very intentional about addressing equity um, through all of the planning from winery selection. Uh, honestly, we started this talking about how were we going to select our wineries. Mm -hmm. And it really brought us back to an equity question and what is our motive and our drive? And is our drive to create professional wine networks um, and uh, or, or is it our job to be the judge of every other person's product and decide whether or not we're going to let them into our festival, right? So the latter would be replicating how the wine industry has functioned in the past. And what we did is um, uh, open, the, open that door. Um, and then another, uh, you know, how this then ties in is uh, when we're talking about why these things are necessary, why do we need professional wine networks within the queer, or queer networks within the wine community? Um, it's so that we can start addressing things like implicit bias, and, and those biases show up when you say uh, to wine people things like that we're allowing people to come without screening. I am... I can't read everybody's mind, unfortunately, and make my life a lot easier, but um, I can't read everybody's mind. But you, you, you know as well as I know, everybody that is in the world of wine knows as well as I know that when you make a statement like that, that you're having open access, you're immediately questioning the quality of those wines. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we have very little show from the wine industry also, to me, continues to speak about the biases that exist in the wine industry because there is this implicit bias. Um, and it's why we need DEI training. It's why we need every winery to do DEI training. It's not to punish and say you're not doing the right thing or you haven't uh, included me or anything like that. It's that so when you have that thought, and that thought is like, oh, I bet the wines aren't gonna be very good, that you've also educated yourself enough to go, why would I think that? Let me look at who's actually coming to this. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's Remy Wines and Elk Cove and Westry. I mean, those are just three of our local wineries that are coming out of the 16. What do we know about those wines? Those are great wines. Those are great wineries, right? Um, so 
Ultimately, what I'm doing with Queer Wine Fest is continuing to try to break down systems of oppression. <laughs> Just as simple as that. Simple as that. And while we're doing it, hopefully raise some money for this nonprofit that I co-founded and am president of who has this overarching goal of delivering equity at every, at every juncture. Mm -hmm. um, is this going to be a phenomenal fundraiser? No, it's a really expensive event to put on. It's still really important, and it still will raise money. I mean, we are still making a significant donation to Wine Country Pride. But this event is delivering not just that fundraising. It's delivering a lot more to the queer wine community, to the, and, and therefore to the wine community, right? It's a point I like to make when people ask me about queer, uh, queer folk in wine or queer folk in anywhere, um, uh, is that, you know, queer folk are everybody, right? Mm -hmm. So queer folk are Democrats, Republicans, they're every religion, they're every nationality, they're every culture, they're, they're people of color, they're white people, they are... Uh, people at every level of um, uh, socioeconomic ability, privilege, they are able-bodied people, they are uh, less able-bodied people, they are people with mental illness, they are people without mental illness, they are people with drug addiction, they are people without drug addiction. Uh, really, queer is such an umbrella term that just uh, captures this, this portion of all of humanity. Mm -hmm. On that note, I'm I'm curious when you when you you mentioned you reached out and you were trying to trying to send a broad signal out to to invite people to this festival. Were you did you have any idea in terms of how many queer folks there were in wine? No, uh, I thought we would be lucky to get ten wineries participating. I really did. I, I mean, it it has been like it, it's been a lot of. It, no, I had no idea. I, and it's not only that we, we or I didn't really realize all of these queer-owned wineries. On top of that, people have started coming out. I mean, we hear this so regularly at Wine Country Pride from the community, but now we're hearing it in the wine community as well. You know, I've... Um, a common thing I've heard over the last couple of years as Wine Country Pride has put out this very broad message of acceptance and, you know, you don't have to identify as queer or gay or lesbian or, you know, you don't have to label yourself to, mm -hmm. that, you know, we acknowledge that you are under this umbrella with or without however you choose to or not to identify. Um, but what we've had happen with the wine industry and outside the wine industry is people contacting us and basically saying, you know, I'm fill in the blank with the, I, how they're identifying and say, I, you know, currently I'm in a heteronormative relationship, but I've always had this part of me and I just never felt comfortable talking about it before. So we hear that a lot. We hear people letting go of the fear of being out mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. But that's very new, and and from and I think you would know this from our previous interview. I was really just starting to be out in business when we last spoke, mm -hmm. um, and it was a and it was very scary, 
It was a very scary transition, and I did lose a lot of business, mm -hmm. and I gained business, but I still lost that other business, and we still get attacked a lot. I mean, our flags get ripped down, um, uh, they get vandalized, uh, the flags that are out there. We had, we literally had somebody come into our tasting room three weeks ago, a month ago maybe, uh, come in, order a flight of wine, he was clearly agitated, and then he told us that he was a Nazi and that he hated women and he hated Jews and he asked my staff how they could work for somebody like me. Sucks. So what my employee did in that situation was they used the training that we have to provide and we have to provide it because the Department of Justice has let me know that Remy Wines has been identified as a place for neo-Nazis to go agitate. Mm. Um, so he used to, you know, we've done some de-escalation training. We continue to do it. He um, remained calm. He looked to see if the person had any weapons. And then he said, thank you for coming, sir. I think it's time for you to leave. And that's really hard, and we do have to train to do that, to say thank you, you know, to, dis to literally disarm people when they're attacking you. Thank you for coming. I think it's time for you to leave. And luckily in that situation, he did leave. I don't know, I make reports to the sheriff or the PD and the Department of Justice probably on a six to eight week basis based on some something mm -hmm. that happens to us. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah. hasn't been an easy transition. Mm -hmm. um, I tend to really just tell the story about all the good things that are happening because there are a lot mm -hmm. of good things that are happening. Um, you know, with our Wine Country Pride Rainbow Quest initiative, we have 53 locations around wine country that are participating. Those are not all wineries, but that's really broad. And, you know, we called it Wine Country Pride, not Yamhill County Pride, because Yamhill County is still prescribing back to, okay, well, we're creating, we're, we're now, we're only operating within the boundaries that were created, uh, you know, 100 years ago by a bunch of old white men. So um, instead, what we're talking about is this wine community that exists in wine country. And so wine country doesn't have those physical demarcations, although we certainly have AVAs and things like that. When we talk about the wine community, we're not like, oh, I only meant the, the people in the Dundee Hills AVA. <laughs> we don't want those people from, you know, the Southern Willamette. I mean, you know, we want the whole wine industry to participate. So we're seeing that, 53 locations there. The wine donations for the street festival, I mean, people have shown up there. People have shown up financially with a ton of support. Um, including a lot of large organizations. So the Oregon Wine Board has um, contributed, uh, we got a mini grant from the Oregon Wine Board um, towards bringing wine media to Queer Wine Fest, which we do have wineries outside the Willamette Valley and, and that are in other places in Oregon also participating. We do have um, a tremendous support from the Willamette Valley Wineries Association who has been working at getting out the messaging, not just about this, but about how wineries can get involved. Um, oh, I never finished all my equity stuff on Queer Wine Fest. Damn it. Oh well. <laughs> um, 
and uh, and then we have some large some some larger donations that have come in from um, partners in the wine industry as well so the wine industry is really showing up you know we have flags everywhere I mean it's really incredible we have literally transformed McMinnville in the last couple of years I mean I have lived in McMinnville the majority of my life and there has never been my, my whole existence growing up there you know high school college like there has there has never been a pride flag hanging in downtown McMinnville and if you walk through downtown McMinnville if you go through Newburgh if you go through Dundee if you throw, show up in Carlton and even places in Sheridan now you can see pride flags it is amazing it's amazing and it's led to other conversations within the queer community um, interestingly right so tremendous show of support we got criticized year one right people are always happy to be critics um, so we got criticized year one uh, this is rainbow washing you're rainbow washing McMinnville and you know this, that's really hard when you're getting criticized from the very community that you're working so hard to uplift and create spaces for and you know the good thing is we have a very smart board of directors at Wine Country Pride and it leads to a lot of robust conversation and none of us are uh, none of us are scared to question ourselves or, or question if we really are doing something right, if we really have brought equity. Um, in this particular situation, we as a board ultimately decided that, it, <laughs> that we didn't feel we needed to take any other action, that, that having this incredible display of support from allies uh, really it, it really did cement these spaces including downtown McMinnville the whole the what McMinnville calls its living room mm -hmm. looks and feels safe to queer people um, that's important we talked about your last conversation and, and you mentioned how it how difficult it was being queer in the wine industry at that point and how you were still kind of coming to terms with that and how you uh, I remember you saying you, you know you, you didn't want to be thought of as a queer winemaker you want to be a, a winemaker who was queer I'm curious in the last five years as as these things have happened and these changes have happened um, has that changed at all has your has it gotten easier in your position in some ways has it gotten harder in some ways what's the kind of overall for sort of how you feel about your sort of your role in the wine industry I my wines are still phenomenal. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Um, I think that what's shifted is as I decided, hmm, this is hard to answer. I've always been in leadership roles. I've been in queer leadership roles a lot of my life as well. I started, I was part of the folks that started the first GSA at McMinnville High School. Um, I think, uh, yes, I want to be well respected in the wine industry for my wines. Mm -hmm. That's important to me. Um, I put a lot of effort, energy, heart and soul, obviously, into the production of those wines. And from facing my own fears around being out in business and out really out in wine I have 
and by educating myself a lot, uh, especially over the last couple years, not just about being queer in wine, but about equity. Um, I think that I have just emerged as a, that my leadership qualities are what have come forward and I am just, I have stepped into that role in every way. Mm -hmm. um, And if being queer is what brings a lot of attention to be able to talk about equity, then I'm fine. I'm comfortable with that. I won't say I'm fine with it. I'm comfortable with it. I, I, I you know, I don't not, I, I mean, I, I, <laughs> this is so difficult because yeah, I, of course we all wanna just, we all wanna be seen, right? So we want these parts of us to also be seen. So it's not that I want to just be seen as a winemaker and not be seen as a queer winemaker. I do, it's just more so that I, um, I don't know, you know, it's just hard to think about how, I don't know, I don't know how people think about me. I know people think about me. <laughs> And I don't, I, maybe that's just the best answer. I, I can't put any energy into how other people perceive me anymore. I just have to keep doing my best right all the time. Mm -hmm. And for me, that now means that I have these new areas of access and privilege and I sit at tables that people don't sit at and I am a queer leader in the community, whether that's wine or anything else. Um, and I'm a person of action, and I've taken a lot of action steps to change not just the wine industry, but change what it means to be queer in rural Oregon. And I do like to remind the wine industry that we are queer in rural Oregon, and it is difficult. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so no attention thinking about whatever people who met me. Well, it's interesting because I mean, Other than when, my dog. you know, as you know, <laughs> for example, as we as we got to know Bertoni, he, he, he you could tell he was feeling more comfortable in his role from when he started in the industry to where he was a few years later as being the sort of the sort of token, as he said, you know, to, mm -hmm. tokens only as a coins you determine how much it's worth, as he likes to say. Uh, do you feel more comfortable being out in business? I guess would be the easiest way to ask the question. Do you feel like that's just part of who you are now? Oh, yeah. I mean. Well, I know you can't look around with the camera, but we're like, we're so surrounded by pride, everything. Yeah, I mean, it's, it just is. I mean, that, that, that nervousness about what will happen, that ship has sailed. And now shit happens. And those things don't eliminate all the good mm -hmm. that, we're, that we're doing simultaneously. It's okay for both things to exist at the same time. And yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm so out and I am the like, I'm a really out, I'm the most out, out, really out, all the time, out person that I just, <laughs> just, just no, there's no going back. <laughs> Not that I'd want to, but you know what I mean, like, I, I, I mean, who doesn't know that I'm gay at this point, really? <laughs> You would have to be willfully trying not to know, I think, I at this point. I would! I would! Um, yeah. 
Yeah. All right. So, well, if we're talking about leadership, obviously another sure. another form of leadership. When, when we interviewed you five years ago, you were on the city council at that point, and mm -hmm. I made an offhand remark that you might be mayor someday, and you uh, dismissed my I thought that you might ever be mayor. I believe you said no, 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 no. It was about your answer to that. So, what changed in five years to lead you to be Mayor McMinnville? Well, my historic no was always based on the fact that being mayor is a full-time volunteer position, and the idea of having to do a full-time volunteer job while building my much more fledgling brand was overwhelming at the time. Um, when I interviewed to be on the planning commission, which I was on for two terms before the city council, the then mayor asked me why I was running for planning commission. And my answer to him at that time was so that I can sit where you're sitting one day. Um, I also think I dismissed being mayor for a while um, because I was getting feedback around me that it would be bad for me. And you know, sometimes we listen to that more than we listen to ourselves. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm very prepared to be mayor. I've been in civic service for 12 years um, and not just lightly. I mean, I work. Also, the pandemic in a weird way helped me understand how effective I could really be in government um, and that I could really help chart the course for how government processes happen. And that started because um, when we got our shelter in place orders, uh, one of my first, the, the first thing that I started working on was trying to figure out where those who don't have houses were going to shelter in place. And so I called together this work group, Director of Health and Human Services, our city managers, our, uh, the head of our, uh, you know, organization, YCAP, our uh, nonprofit organization, other nonprofits. The first meetings, it was like everybody that works in housing services was at that meeting. And, um, it, you know, it, it's my, it was probably my first Zoom. I think it might have even been a phone call. We might have not even made that adaptation. And right away, it was like, okay, well, are we meeting again tomorrow? How long do you need for your deliverables? How long do you need for your deliverables? And then, okay, well, we're, let's, we're gonna meet again here in two days, right? That's 48 hours where people with shelter in place orders don't have anywhere to stay. So like, let's get back on it. And that group just narrowed down as we focused out, focused in on what, what we were going to do, which is that we expand, we made this emergency motel, motelling program. We, you know, it was not the first idea, it was the best idea. And, um, we focused on the most vulnerable populations within the unhoused community, and we figured out funding. I mean, we just went for it. Um, and that really showed me my ability to bring people together, to work collaboratively, to produce phenomenal results. That program we started has maintained a 75% success rate of people exiting to permanent housing. That's unheard of. And we were immediately reaching, because we were focusing on reaching the most vulnerable populations, that really meant that we were focusing first on those who were experiencing chronic houselessness. Mm -hmm. And 
people that work in the world of housing know that um, the hardest population to serve are people who are chronically houseless, so people that have been um, without permanent housing for over a year. Um, just as you get further and further away from kind of this, the, the way this, our, our societies tells us we have to function, um, it gets harder and harder to reintegrate into that system. Uh, we served over 300 people in the first year of that program alone. Then with YCAP, we reached out, we got the regional Providence involved, and long-term City of McMinnville collaboration, YCAP, bought a motel. It's managed by YCAP. It's a year-round program. I think we have 45 people in that program right now. We would have more, but YCAP can't hire enough caseworkers. Um, we figured out, you know, uh, funding, we're continuing to figure out funding. So that kind of um, being able to produce that type of result when, you know, do you know how many years and how many meetings and how many conversations about how do we address this and where do we start? And it's everybody knows, you know, you start with the hardest to reach population, but it's much easier to take small bites, right? Or it seems much easier to take small bites. So we've, so many things we've tried to do to actually make a, a difference in the total number of people that are experiencing houselessness um, in our area and this really did it. And then that kind of showed me this, um, not, I always knew I could bring people along, you know, mm -hmm. I, we have a great team here and my team had a ton of trust in me right from the beginning with, you know, I kept everybody employed. Nobody got laid off, nobody got fired. Our part-time people went to commission-based sales. That was the worst loss of income that my employees would have, you know, suffered, although, I mean, there were loss of hours and things like that. Obviously, we had to close, but we stayed creative with coming up with solutions. So I knew I had the ability to bring people together. I think what the pandemic showed me was my ability to bring people in other powerful positions together. And that has really allowed me to start making change, and, I, and that's what I continue to do. Um, and, and, and so I'm, and that has, you know, in many ways it prepared me even more. And then the council unanimously appointed me council president, um, which is typical that it's in a unanimous appointment. However, I don't expect things like that to happen, right? Um, uh, I, I don't expect that because I know that there are people who won't, they're, they're, and I'm not talking about our council specifically right now, but there will always be people that don't want me to be successful because I'm queer or because I'm Jewish or because I'm female or whatever, or because of some other thing that they perceive about me. Um, so that was important. And this a unanimous appointment to the seat of mayor is also very important. This goes back to your question about, do, you know, do I want to be known as a queer mayor or a mayor? I am the mayor of McMinnville. In this instance, I think this is really a difficult time. It's my job, I am always the mayor. Uh, it, it's an interesting shift, right? Because it's just, you know, I was weed whacking in like my sports bra and some shorts the other day at my house and my mom came up and she said, the mayor of McMinnville cannot be on the sidewalk in a sports bra. I said, you know what, you're right. I mean, you're right. She's right. Um, I, 
I will, I will always be the mayor of McMinnville and I'll always be, I mean, I don't know, I'll always be the mayor of McMinnville, but I will always be queer. That will always be part of that identity. Um, but also the job of the, I, I have to do each job independently, right? The job of Remy at Remy Wines is different than the job of the president of Wine Country Pride is different than the job of the mayor of city of McMinnville. Mm -hmm. And I don't have to do those jobs all simultaneously. And I can't, I do them consecutively. What made you, I mean, you, you mentioned it was, you know, you, you progressed through the ranks of politics and, uh, to a unanimous, pres unanimous president, to unanimous mayor. What made you decide to say yes? Or what made you decide to like leave your name in, in, in on the ballot at that, at that point? What, what about the timing made you think this is the time to do it? I am, prepared and probably one of the most qualified people to be the mayor of our city. So, I don't, you know, I don't step away from opportunities. You mentioned, obviously, from our last conversation, houselessness was a big part of the conversation as well. You mentioned kind of as a big accomplishment of the past couple of years. Are there other accomplishments politically in the last few years that you're particularly proud of? And on the same token, are there things you're looking ahead to ch tackling next? Yeah, uh, so I've chaired the McMinnville Affordable Housing Commission for the last six years, and we've done a lot. Um, we've done a lot of code changes that just make it easier to build more affordable housing in McMinnville. But the bigger, like, our big successes are some of these things I mentioned, which I actually did a post about it the other day, if you want any info on that. Um, they have been, you know, the Project Turnkey, that's enormous. That's literally hundreds of people have, because of this program and the work of the people and, uh, that support this program, literally hundreds of people have ended their own houselessness. Uh, that's incredible, though. That's incredible. Um, we also just, um, we spent a lot of time going to the legislature trying to get the state to give us some money for a navigation center, which is, has a similar function, but it's different. Um, we just got that. We just got $1.5 million to build the navigation center. Uh, a navigation center is a place where people can go seven days a week and you kind of get wraparound services. You know, you, it's, it, it has some emergency shelter aspect, but it's not an emergency shelter. It's not, well, you go there and then you just stay there in perpetuity. It is, you go there, you, you get your most basic human needs met first, of course, but then the wraparound services are right there. So all of a sudden it's taking all this work out. You know, it's a lot of work to be poor. Um, and so by bringing the services to the people and giving the people a place where they can go when they're, when they're having this experience in life, it, it, it makes it easier for those people to then access the services they need. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a big accomplishment, uh, getting $1.5 million from the state to do this development. That's coming online later this year. Um, uh, we've done a lot, we work a lot with the Housing Authority and um, we've been trying to get Stratus Village, which is an affordable housing development um, funded. It's uh, it started as a 200 unit development. Um, we're at, it's at 175 units right now. It's a very beautiful design. It's a nice complex with exterior gardens. It's they, They're very focused on not having an affordable housing project that is reflective of subpar historic 
um, development. Um, so <clears throat> lots of asks out for funding, lots of letters, things like that. But they were coming up with a pretty significant shortfall and um, I have uh, really good relationships as well with the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde and I was able to facilitate um, some conversations. Again, lots of meetings. I mean, people want to know what I knew. I go to meetings. People think meetings aren't effective. They haven't been to one of my meetings. <laughs> um, they start on time. They end on time, usually. And, uh, and everybody has homework when they leave. So um, a series of meetings, site visits, end result. We found out a month ago, Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde is, uh, has entered a, an MOU and a Memorandum of Understanding with the Housing Authority of Yamhill County with a $7 million commitment. So literally bringing $7 million, so that's, so that's $8.5 million that we've just brought in that's solely focused on housing. That's huge. Um, it's not here yet but it's coming and it's taken a lot to get there. And then my outgoing vote as a counselor was the establishment of an affordable housing fund. So when we started the McMinnville Affordable Housing Commission, started as a task force six years ago, you know, I didn't have any money. I didn't have any money from the city. There were no housing funds. And we've repeatedly come back for a minute. We, we got the city to agree to give us a portion of transient lodging taxes. Those are the taxes that are paid by tourists when they come and stay in the hotel rooms. That was great, but then the pandemic hit. So it was like, there, it was like, here, you have some money. Just kidding, you don't have any money, again. Um, and we brought forward a proposal on a construction excise tax um, with an exemption for affordable housing. So you don't pay it if you're building affordable housing already, but if you're building, you know, market rate housing, you pay this 1% construction excise tax and it goes into a dedicated housing fund. Why do we need money? I mean, other than it costs time for the people that actually get paid to do this work, other than, you know, just my, um, all my, like it's not, you know, this is, the, these systems aren't built on volunteerism alone, right? There's a lot of people that make these things happen. Um, aside from that, money gives us the, thing, the, the ability to start leveraging, um, doing things like, land banking or, or putting together land trusts. It also gives us an opportunity, say with this housing authority project, that instead of writing and signing my name to a half a dozen letters and going to the Oregon State Legislature, we can write one letter that says, yes, the city of McMinnville supports this project and here is our sign of support. We're dedicating $100,000 of our own money towards this project. And that goes a long way when you have other organizations that are going out and asking for other money right they want to see that type of community support um, so those are some really big accomplishments that my work is specifically tied to the city as a whole has done a lot of other work but housing has always really been um, a lot my main it's always been my main focus in my city work um, the other thing that I've been working on a lot is harder to see. I've been working on communication, and that's internal communication, communication among counselors. We had, um, we were very disrupted as a nonpartisan body with the 2020 election cycle. And all of a sudden you had people's, you know, we're all supposed to be, we're all nonpartisan representatives, right? Now, people I'm sure assume my politics. That's fine. 
I know other people's politics. It's fine. Our job is parks, streets. What happens when you flush your toilet? You know, where does that go? It's our responsibility to make sure that that happens safely, that you do have um, uh, safe parks to show up to, um, that, you know, that, that you have safe streets to drive on. We are a full service city. So literally we do everything, fire, ambulance, um, parks and recreation, library, wastewater. We even have our own utility. It's very rare. I, it's very rare. And the mayor, you know, is also part of the utility. So I now run that utility as well. Ah, that's a trip. I don't run it. It has a general manager and it has a commission that runs it. Um, I am now on that commission and I will run the water and light meetings, but I'm part of that decision-making body as well. So it's, you know, it's a lot. <laughs> well, you we talked about kind of accomplishments. What about looking oh, yeah. ahead? What are, the, what, are the, what are some of the things you see that you'd like to focus on next? Well, I mean, the very real needs of the city is I, I, are that we need to get our city funded. We've been operating with a $2 million budget deficit for the last number of years. So solving that problem is huge. I've been, I'm trying to kind of get a Hail Mary here before our budget closes on June 28th. Um, the last week, I cannot tell you how many meetings I've been in moving us towards that end. We are really, we're trying to, so that's the number one thing is we need to figure out permanent sustainable funding sources because without that, we fall apart functionally as a city. And then when that happens, then we might be pretty to come look at, but we can't actually do anything. And then that's not good for our citizens. And at the end of the day, you know, the citizens need to be able to afford where to live where they work. They need to be able to live and work in McMinnville. McMinnville needs to be what it has been historically, which is a great place to live. Mm -hmm. um, I'm certainly not driving us towards just being a great place to visit. But, so that's a very, uh, that's a very big goal. And um, that comes through being able to pay for the services for our citizens that we say we offer. And running a city is very personnel intensive. We have over 200 employees that, that make the city of McMinnville function. We have over a thousand volunteers. You know, that's everybody from parents that are coaching um, in our sports leagues to the mayor, right? Planning commissioners, all our committees, etc. cetera. Um, so fixing our, our budget uh, is, my number one priority. Um, but hand in hand while I'm doing that is with communication and transparency. Yeah. And um, there's some real specifics. Like there's some, there's some uh, public engagement software that I wanna drive us towards. You know, not everything has to be reinventing the wheel, right? But we need money to buy the software. And money, and we need money to pay staff to do the data, to, to you know, to make the software function. We all know that, right? You know, there's no, there's nothing you can really just buy off a shelf, and and then that's going to work to serve 35,000 people and their needs, answers, and requests. So, um, so those are my two big goals. And I'll remain the chair of the housing commission as long as they keep voting me into that role. Anyways. So switching gears a little bit, obviously I want to talk about this space that we're in now. When we talked last, this was just getting off the ground. My so tell goodness. me about the, tell me about the development of this property um, and the kind of the growth of the brand that has gone along with it. Sure. Well, you might hear some hammering in the background because we are 
doing some adaptive reuse with the barn that used to be just a tractor barn essentially and we're converting that to a winery so that's the biggest most current change and then the big part about that is that we've developed this new carbon neutral um, it actually is carbon negative at this concrete that we've developed this formula it actually sequesters carbon out of the atmosphere in the production of it <laughs> I was pretty geeked, I was pretty geeked out reading about this when you were, when you were, I was this that's awesome. It's really cool. Um, and we've taken everything into account from the trucks driving from to get the the trucks driving to deliver the supplies, the trucks driving here with the concrete, all of that math has been done. It is really and 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 verified. Hmm. Um, uh, so that's been huge. We're doing a lot of other work worker safety thoughts with the winery, workplace safety. Um, you know, we move so much heavy equipment, winemaking so hard on our bodies. So we've done, um, like we're piping gas through overhead and through the facility. So if you need nitrogen or CO2 or whatever, instead of hauling your gas tank around, um, you're taking your line over to the wall and you're putting your quick release in and it's got a 50 foot radius. We're also doing a lot of sustainability thoughts and measures, you know, we're collecting our roof water, it's going into the fire retention pond we're putting in. We're putting in a fire retention pond so we didn't have to buy six 5,000 gallon black plastic tanks and knock down some forest to set them up. Um, we have our one bathroom, right? One bathroom, all genders, all people, all four stalls are ADA accessible, all three sinks are ADA accessible, and the bathroom has an exterior entrance so that when our vineyard stewards, who are majority people of color, are here at 6 a.m. and our tasting room staff isn't here with keys to the tasting room, there's still an access point so that our vineyard stewards are able to use the same better quality plumbing um, uh, as people that are working in sales who are not necessarily majority white, but it's not unusual and, and at this point in time happens to be true. So, you know, it's, it's a, you know, being realistic and looking at the industry, right? You have majority white people working in tasting rooms or working in sales and um, majority brown people working in vineyards. So uh, just to, to normalize one, <laughs> I won't say small thing because um, safety, health, and hygiene is a huge thing and it's something that we know about our greater systems of oppression that it is the, it's literally the health of people of color tends to be affected by our systems of oppression and uh, not tends to, is. Uh, and so creating equal access to something as basic as a bathroom shouldn't be such a big deal, but it actually is. Mm -hmm. um, so we're doing that. Uh, we've also engineered things into this building for the future, so hopefully we'll have a second phase where we do an exterior crush pad and um, we're able to move some of our operations. There's just big more expansion plans. <laughs> um, right here, I mean, we're mowing the grass, we're tending the gardens. Um, we're open seven days a week. We have been the whole time, including through the pandemic. Um, uh, Ralph, who is our cellar master, he came out and lived here for the first three months. You know, it is an old farmhouse. Um, we've got a comfy chair upstairs now because of it. Yeah, we're, um, we're 
you know, fully functional tasting room. <laughs> yeah, I've, our, it, we've changed the space a lot since we opened and then with the pandemic and we've had, you know, we had more tasting room space. We had tasting rooms that became offices so that people could spread apart. Um, uh, we're still pretty event heavy, um, just kind of getting back into doing events and I don't know. My mom had to move her gardens over here. They couldn't be behind the barn anymore. I hear about it a lot. The sun exposure is not the same. Um, that's all her garlic growing behind you. You would think, who needs that much garlic? My mom. Um, and it's hard to get her to part with it too. Like, like I can't promise you a head of garlic, even though that looks like an insane amount of garlic back there. Um, uh, what else? I don't know. I'm really looking forward to being in one location mm -hmm. or two locations. I, you know, I'll st obviously now I have a new office in McMinnville, but um, as opposed to having a production facility separate and apart from the vineyard and the winemaking facility, it would be nice to just be here. Mm -hmm. how, how has the brand changed in the, the last brand. five years? Well, Remy Wines has stayed very consistent in that it's all Italian single vineyard, 100% varietal wines, and I make you know about 200 cases of each, or less, 50 to 200, maybe 250 cases. Um, Three Wives has stayed relatively the same in that that's really stayed as my kind of playground. Um, I consistent, you know, I do a red blend under there that changes every year, but it, there's kind of a consistent thread that goes through those wines. Um, and I always offer, you know, we house our Pinot Gris there and we, and we do a Pinot Gris and a Rosé. And so that there's been um, some fun and playfulness that's happened in that label as it always happens. But uh, the big new thing is that I launched this um, series that we're calling the Blackheart series. And actually we were scheduled to release um, the first, uh, the first Method Champenoise Sparkling in June of 2020. It was all labeled, Blackheart label. Uh, the label itself is, is um, it almost looks like a playing card. It's white, has a black heart on it. Um, well, honestly, I'd never thought about that symbolism, meaning anything other than what it meant to me. Um, and so we took a really, so we took a really long, hard pause, of course, because it was June of 2020 and immediately following the death of George Floyd and all of a sudden I was seeing all these black hearts coming from the black community and I really um, didn't want to um, appropriate imagery. Um, so we had to stop and think and talk and check in with community and we did that and decided that that, that wine would become a permanent fundraiser for the ACLU. We didn't adjust the price. We just said we're taking 5% of our sales and giving it to the ACLU. And then I've continued to grow that particular wine from, uh, I forget the first year was maybe 100 cases and now we're at about 400 cases. So the end result is that our annual contribution now to the ACLU is the largest cash contribution that we had ever made anywhere. Um, and, uh, but then we've, the, the idea of the Blackheart series was to kind of emulate or pay homage to classic or iconic wines from around the world. Um, so I started with sparkling, because 
who doesn't love sparkling? Um, and then I've also done some other uh, projects. So they're related to the Remy Wines label, but they're separate and apart. And we call them, it's the Blackheart series by Remy. So we have the Blackheart, Gold Star, um, uh, Stardust, and we're going to be releasing Stargazer um, later this year. And apparently those names are confusing for people. <laughs> Live and learn. I try to run my ideas through the professionals that I surround myself with, but sometimes I'm just like, I want to call it this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how much confusion it'll lead to down the line, but um, naming three wines something with the word star in them, though, a lot of confusion, mm. just so you know. Don't do that. That's my advice to everybody that wants to get into the wine industry. Don't have three different names with the word star in it. It's excellent advice. Thank you. It's very specific. Yeah, but I know you didn't ask. It's much more wide-ranging than that as well. Yeah. <laughs> So with the kind of all the new projects, uh, have you found your style of winemaking or your kind of your your desired output has changed at all? No, no, I don't think so. Um, I'm still, you know, I'm very much a minimal, a minimalist in some ways, right? I like to collect a lot of information, but then only kind of do what's necessary. Maybe that's true in my style of uh, leading in government as well. No, I'm, you know, my winemaking, I mean, I've, I've learned more, right? I've been through some smoke uh, events now, so I've had additional learning curve on that. Um, I, no, I think my winemaking's very consistent, actually. Yeah, the wines change, but the winemaking is very consistent. My palate, is definitely now geared towards more low alcohol wines, and that might be a, a bigger shift. There's some varietals that just lend, them, lend themselves to coming in at higher alcohol, and, um, and so I don't work with those as often, so that, that might be a bit of a shift. We, I don't make a Barbera anymore. It was just New World Barbera was really hard to get to come in below 15%. That's not why I stopped making it, but you know, in terms of do I want to, what wines do I want to make? being able to bring in really beautiful wines um, and but still you know I just I just find I enjoy lower alcohol wines more I just there's just more going on for me and so um, maybe my, my wine making's geared a little towards that I don't know so obviously you've talked about some of, some of the things in the past couple of years. I mentioned the pandemic, obviously you mentioned smoke. Uh, tell me about, uh, has your outlook on Oregon wine and the industry changed in the last five years? Uh, have you, has, has your kind of thoughts on where the industry is or is going, have, has that changed at all? And if so, what, what, is, what are you kind of thinking for the future of Oregon wine? Well, the, you know, there's, there's so many things that have shifted, including who the players are. Um, and that matters, I think, especially in terms of when we think about research and research funding and how that will impact the industry. So, you know, 
there's oftentimes fear of change um, and and people are often scared to kind of share power right and in this sense in the wine industry power I'm thinking about you know who who are the big the right like the big players and I and so we've had all this outside influence come in from you know France and California etc but what that that power has also brought is the ability to um, fund research, uh, and so I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, at Remy Wines, you know, we've always been kind of planning for climate change. We've planted Lagrine forever ago. You know, that was intentional. Um, that was intentional, anticipating uh, continued climate change as well. Um, so I think we'll start to see some more of those shifts. I don't know what it will mean in terms of other growing regions opening up or growing regions that become less hospitable. Mm -hmm. um, it's a, I think this is a hard moment in time to predict the future, especially when we think about the climate. I think what we can talk about in the future of the wine industry is, is this the moment when the wine industry is going to take a... Uh, is the wine industry now ready to take action about our impact on climate change? Um, and that will be the shift I would be looking to see in the wine industry. We're seeing these, this equity shift, but you know, that again is that it's driven by um, the underrepresented, historically underrepresented communities. So how much energy do we have to drive that through the, uh, through, through the industry? That will be a, a limiting factor. Um, without robust support from the industry. So is the industry, the wine industry on a larger scale, going to step up and give us that robust support? I mean, we definitely saw that this, this year when I mentioned the support we got at, um, uh, at for, with Queer Wine Festival and Wine Country Pride. Um, I mean, the Willamette Valley Wineries Association, they've stepped up mm -hmm. big time. Um, that, that uh, I would say is um, demonstrable of how we move forward. Um, it's in partnership and it's in communication and it's still allowing those who have been marginalized to be the leaders, mm -hmm. right? Because we don't need, I don't need straight people telling me how I can be my best queer. Um, we don't need white people telling brown people how the white people are going to be acting more equitable. Um, we need to be elevating and listening to the voices that are from community and, and let that leadership change. So the, the, the demand on the wine industry and how we grow is if the greater wine industry, um, the historically, you know, majority white, at least as represented, maybe that's not actually a truth, but as represented by our major publications, by the leadership that we see on, um, you know, a lot of uh, committees and organizational groups, um, not just in Oregon, in the wine industry as whole, majority white. Um, we've started to see some of that change. I know the Oregon Wine Board um, has been diversifying. Um, 
This is going to go back, though, to some of my, my earlier conversation about are we going to start seeing this robust DEI training? Because those of us that are leaders from minority communities, none of us need you to ask us to do anything else. We've been asked to serve on every board and every committee and to do everything and to speak at everything over the last two years more so than ever before, and a lot of it not merit-based. Not, not saying that things aren't deserved, mm -hmm. but not because of our work. Mm -hmm. We were being tokenized, right? Mm -hmm. So as this happens, we need these leadership, um, these, the people, we, we, we need the industry, as it's doing this, um, this work of elevating these voices, to look at itself and say, well, why aren't these voices here at the table already? Not, I choose you because you're, you're queer or you're black and we want to have, you know, mm -hmm. queer, black, trans, Jewish people on our board now. Um, it, it has to be, uh, it, it has to be that, um, that those boards and committees are self-educating and understanding why they've been exclusionary historically. Mm -hmm. I don't know that that's where the industry's going, but that's where we're trying to push it. Mm -hmm. Do you feel progress being made? Yeah, of course. Um, Assemblage was very powerful this year. Again, would have liked to have seen a lot, I mean, it's a wine industry event. I would have liked to have seen a lot more um, folks there. I would have liked to have seen people send their employees. Mm -hmm. Really, um, and that event and Queer Wine Fest sliding scale options available on both both of both those um, both of those events. So, um, you know, some intentionality around access. Um, we would like to see more wine events that are intentional about creating access and aren't only interested in marketing towards people with a lot of money. Yes, sometimes our wine costs a lot of money. Not everybody can afford to buy all wine. Um, that, you, but if you just stop there and you just say, well, you know, my wine, it just, it's just not meant for them, whoever they are, you know. Then you've literally done nothing to, to stop and reframe about how, how do we create equity and access. Um, that's the, the challenge for the wine industry right now. So what's next for you then? Obviously, a lot on your plate, even more than last I mean, time. So much on your plate. <laughs> so much on my plate. What's up for me? I mean, you know, getting moved on the very literal sense, we'll be moving here just before harvest. But we are hiring an assistant winemaker, so that's a big change. We're moving here, that's a big change. Um, and then, you know, I'm really just stepping in to this more, um, to a leadership role in the wine industry, I think. And that's something that's starting to happen right now. I would say historically, um, I have always felt kind of excluded from the wine industry, which is interesting because I grew up here. I've been around it and part of it my whole life. But um, that goes back to the thing you said earlier. But what I said five years ago about wanting to be viewed as a winemaker, it's, th that's really what that's about. It's that I want to be accepted and acknowledged for 
the quality of wines that I'm producing by the by the wine industry. That's important, right? We might not think we want it to be important, but it is. And at the same time, I've always bucked every system that the wine industry has produced. I've never submitted a wine for a score, for instance, to anything. So, you know, pay attention, but I'm not gonna play your, <laughs> by your rules. Um, <laughs> But that's a big shift for me. I think, especially following Assemblage and just continuing to get connected with other people that are in leadership roles in the wine community that are from um, marginalized communities. And I haven't had those connections before. That's what I felt like at Assemblage. I felt like I was really, um, there was a lot, of, I had a lot of peer groups. Like a, a lot of the speakers, um, were in the wine industry, had also started nonprofits because they are from a marginalized community and needed representation, um, and you know have these other leadership roles in their life. Um, and so all of a sudden, I met a bunch of people that are also doing the, that work, but in different, you know, with different areas of focus. Uh, that was really invigorating. Um, I need to do more, th I, wanted, I want to do more things like that. Like that filled my cup, right? Like mm -hmm. I was just mm -hmm. with ideas. Mm -hmm. So that's my, figuring out how to keep filling my cup is what's next. I got plenty of giving of things away. I got, like, <laughs> I, I know how to do that so well. I got, like, I, I, know, I know how to control my capacity and put my energy into the community. That is all the questions that I have Whew. for you. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> is there anything that we didn't cover that we should have? Anything I didn't ask that you wish I had asked? Let's see. I don't think so. You covered it all. I think we covered all right, it all. Excellent. Well, thank you for your time, yeah, uh, Madam Mayor. You. It's, it's, it's my first time uh, interviewing a seated official, so that's kind of cool. Um, and I'm seated. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for your time <laughs> and sharing all this with us. And we'll uh, let you off the hook. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.